dad joined them in 1952, and the first launch he saw wasn't supposed to be a launch. Viking 8 uh, was being held down for a test firing in June 1952, but there was so much vibration from the rocket that it took off. This is Cold War Conversations. If you're new here, you've come to the right place to listen to first-hand Cold War history accounts. Do make sure you follow us in your podcast app or join our emailing list at coldwarconversations.com. In today's episode, we speak with Richard Easton, who is the co-author of GPS Declassified, which examines the development of GPS or sat-nav, as some of us call it now, from its secret Cold War military roots. Richard's father's work helped lay the foundations for the GPS system. However, Richard's father also worked on the early US space program, and Richard vividly describes his childhood when his father was working on the early US satellites. Now, before we start, a special thanks to our select band of supporters who are helping us financially for the price of a cup of coffee a month to cover our increasing costs and keep us on the air. They are the proud owners of a Cold War Conversations coaster, this year's must-have household accessory. Just go to patreon.com slash cold war pod for more information that's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com slash cold war pod so back to today's episode we welcome richard easton to cold war conversations i'm the youngest of five uh, born in 1955 grew up in Maryland suburb of Washington, D.C., a pretty typical childhood with, with some interesting aspects. My father, as I mentioned, well mentioned, uh, started working on the space program in 1952 and worked on Project Vanguard, which we'll get into details. But when I was in second grade, they had a show and tell where you'd You'd bring some document and discuss how it affected your family. And Dad was in the 1950, December 1957 National Geographic, which had an article about using satellites. And he, his pictures there shown holding one of the Vanguard test vehicle satellites, the small six-inchers. And you can see how... Advanced publication times were at that time because they had a little postscript about Sputnik being launched. <laughs> but uh, the space program was a constant background, even though much of what Dad did was top secret. So after the Vanguard program, I knew very little about what he did. But that was pretty typical for kids in our area. A lot of the parents, fathers in general at that time, worked at the Naval Research Lab, and we had no idea what they did. Uh, my father was born in Crassbury Common, Vermont, northeastern Vermont, in 1921, son of a doctor, and in 1943, he joined the Naval Research Lab. 
Uh, Milt Rosen, starting in the late 40s, was working, working on Project Viking, which was doing upper atmospheric research. Dad joined them in 1952, and the first launch he saw wasn't supposed to be a launch. Viking 8 uh, was being held down for a test firing in June 1952, and Dad said, Martin, the contractor, changed the way it was bolted down, and it should have worked. But there was so much vibration from the rocket that it took off. And Dad said poor Milt Rosen looked about as upset as a man I ever could be because it was a complete loss of Viking 8. Wow. Um, so so did that, that, that didn't go into orbit, but just went off and crashed in the ocean somewhere, did it? Um, that was in White Sands, so pretty okay. far away from the ocean. Uh, I think the launch security safety people blew it up at three miles. So <laughs> it was pretty much a complete loss, though everyone felt bad about it. The Martin people gave them the next rocket, Viking 9, at cost. So it was just uh, an unfortunate interruption. Um, and, in, and in 1955, the Pentagon set up the Stewart Committee to decide between proposals from the three services, Army, Navy, and Air Force, uh, to launch the first American satellite. Right. And at that point, did they know that the Soviets were, were working on satellites as well? So the setting up the Stewart Committee uh, preceded the, the Soviet announcement. Okay. So the Air Force with the Atlas and Charlie Bossert, who later became a family friend, um, they were working so hard on an ICBM that their proposal was not very serious. The Army had Werner von Braun and his proposal for what ultimately became Explorer and the Naval Research Lab with Milt Rosen. NRL was far ahead of the Army in terms of the sophistication of the satellite and the space tracking. And the Stewart Committee ultimately picked NRL, which upset the Army, and they protested and had another hearing, which also the vote was in favor of NRL. Uh, my father helped write the proposal from April 1955, which included what ultimately became called Minitrack to track the satellite. A number of stations from Blossom Point, Maryland, down to Santiago, Chile, basically 40 degrees north to 40 degrees south. And they later added a station in California, and I believe also one in Australia. But, but the thinking was that the early satellites would be launched, the rockets would launch to the east to take advantage of the Earth's rotation. So a north-south uh, tracking system would be ideal for that. And Vanguard was supposed to come out of Cape Canaveral. So about as far south in the continental U.S. as you can be. And also, you're firing over the Atlantic. So what you just said, you know, if something goes wrong, you're not going to hit a populated area. Yeah. The Navy was very surprised that they won the contest. Mel Rosen said they have a rocket and we don't. <laughs> so, uh, 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 and, and Dad said 
that part of the scuttlebutt was that von Braun thought he had won the competition before he began, that he kind of talked down to the committee. And um, Milt was there with the captain in charge of the lab watching the pro the presentation, and Milt asked him afterwards, how did it go? And the captain said, they were watching you very intently. Uh, we think it went, went very well. So NRL won. Um, part of the reason might have been the thinking that they would not interfere with either intermediate or ICBMs. Uh, of course, the Atlas was an ICBM. The Redstone was an intermediate. Uh, but right after NRL won the competition, Martin was going to be the major contractor for the first stage, improving the Viking rocket as, as the first stage. And Martin also won a contract to work on the Titan ICBM and transferred some of their best engineers to work on that. So rather than Vanguard slowing down ICBMs, ICBMs slowed down Vanguard. Uh, one of my dad's colleagues, Marty Vota, said on October 2nd, 1957, a memo went out that there would be no more paid overtime for Vanguard. And uh, your listeners probably know what happened on October 4th, two days later, the Soviets launched Sputnik 1. So my father called Marty that evening. The satellites were supposed to broadcast at 108 megahertz. But Sputnik broadcast at 20 and 40 megahertz, so they needed to modify Minitrack to detect it. So Dad called up Marty that evening. Marty was having friends over for dinner for the first time in a long time because they were working so hard on Vanguard. And Dad said, uh, the Soviets launched a satellite. And Marty said, good, that means it can be done. And Dad <laughs> said, no, you don't understand. We've got to track it. And Marty said, well, can I finish dinner first? And he said, yes, but come down right afterwards. So they worked almost nonstop for three days adjusting Minitrack so it could detect the 20 and 40 megahertz. Right. And, and Sputnik, uh, the impression I get from what I've read, it was a real shock for the Americans to discover that Russia had that sort of technology. Is that correct? Well, Korolev you know, the Soviet designer, he had considerable trouble getting the Soviet generals to agree to use an R-7, the rocket, to launch a satellite. They were only interested in ICBMs. And I believe your son, Khrushchev's son, Sergei, who was on your program, he was talking about how, you know, Soviets, it was a satellite, big deal. But there was so much hysteria in the West that Khrushchev quickly realized, hey, this is a huge propaganda victory. Um, in 2009, I was talking with Sally Rosen, who's Milt Rosen's wife. Sally came up with the name Vanguard for Project Vanguard. And she told me that when Sputnik was launched, they were in Paris visiting friends. And the Parisians all immediately made the connection. Gee, if they can launch a satellite, they can launch a hydro they can put a hydrogen bomb on it. So so there was quite a bit of uh, furor in the West 
which again, Khrushchev was quick to um, capitalize on. Yeah, yeah. But but I think I understand that the American response to Sputnik didn't exactly go off well. No, no. Uh, Eisenhower, I think on October 9th, had a press conference where he was very uh, gr- strongly grilled. And of course, von Braun uh, could have launched a satellite most likely in September 1956 if they had made the fourth stage live. So, so he and the army were, were talking about, you know, what a debacle it was. Um, and of course, a month later, they launched Sputnik 2 with a dog, Leica, on board. So the Fuhrer got even greater and greater. And Vanguard's test vehicle three, which was the first live test of all three stages, was scheduled for December 57. And there was so much pressure in the White House that they announced that TV3 would launch a satellite, which which uh, astounded the people on Vanguard. They thought it had a very low chance of working. You know, first live test of all three stages. And you've probably all seen video of Flopnik. It gets a couple feet off the pad and blows up. Um, but the satellite survived, uh, designed by my father and Marty Votaw. And after it cooled down, uh, they brought it to Marty, who brought it to my dad. And Marty said, well, what should we do with it? And dad said, well, I guess bring it back. So he put it in this w- little wood box. Again, it's about six inches across, weighs about three and a half pounds, um, carried it on board a commercial flight to Washington. It sat in our house overnight, though I was two years old, so I'm afraid I don't remember it. But my surviving older sister and my brother both remember seeing it. And you can now you can now see it at the National Air and Space Museum in Washington. Yeah, you sent you sent me a um a photo of it. So uh, I'll share that with the uh listeners on the show notes. How how was this satellite powered once it got into orbit? It was going to have two transmitters, which its sister Vanguard 1 TV4, which I've got a picture of me standing sitting next to it uh shortly before its launch. Uh it was to have two transmitters one powered by batteries and the other by solar cells. So it it was the first satellite. You had the two Sputniks and then Explorer 1 at the end of January 1958. Uh, Vanguard 1, which is also test vehicle 4, when it achieved orbit, they renamed it Vanguard 1, had an identical satellite to what was on Flopnik. The solar transmitter operated for six years, whereas, well, Sputnik 1 burned up pretty fast, but I I think it was a week or two that Sputnik 1 and 2, the transmitter worked. Uh, Explorer 1, the transmitter worked for four months. So the the solar power one worked very well. Hi, this is Rhonda in Virginia, and I support Cold War conversations because I think the work that Ian is doing is critically important. I think it's vital to record the firsthand accounts of people who lived and experienced the Cold War um, because it illustrates history in a way that a book never can. 
So thank you so much for the podcast. It's my favorite podcast and I look forward to it every week. To be like Rhonda and help to preserve these incredible stories of the Cold War, as a monthly or annual supporter, you'll be able to listen ad-free, you'll become one of our community, get the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster as a thank you, and you'll bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate to find out more. Okay, and the intention of these satellites was purely to prove that it could be done. I mean, these signals they were transmitting, what were, were they of any use scientifically? They, they had the two signals set to modulate according to the temperature on the exterior and interior of the satellite. So they could get information from that about the temperature. And they found that Vanguard 1 was very useful. Um, the, the original 1955 proposal talked about using satellites to map the, uh, the curvature, the structure of the Earth. And uh, also by, by uh, tracking Vanguard 1, they found that the very thin upper atmosphere actually went out further than they'd previously thought. So, so it was uh, useful for determining the shape of the Earth, slightly pear-shaped, and also uh, how dense the very thin upper atmosphere was. And Vanguard 1 is still up there, um, launched again March 17th, 1958. So it's 61 years old. And uh, you can see me wearing a red coat with it. Uh, looks like late, late winter in Washington, D.C. So I think it was a week or two before its launch. Right. And uh, I, w- I will share a photo of that in the, in the show notes as well. I believe it's the oldest satellite still in space. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, Explorer 1 burned up in 1970. Uh, Sputnik 1 was, I think, a couple months, and I believe Sputnik 2 maybe slightly longer, but they they both burned up very f- quickly. So it's been the oldest satellite in space since 1970. Just goes to show whoever comes first isn't necessarily the most successful. Well, and that was um, one point that people made. Obviously, the Soviets got a lot of space spectaculars. But by circa 1959, the U.S. had more satellites in orbit and much more sophisticated ones. Um, Our first navigation satellite transit was from 1960, and the Soviets' equivalent was from 1967. The first GPS satellite went up in 1978. And the Soviets GLONASS, they started in 1982. So Soviets, you know, all power to them. They, you know, the R7 was a marvelous achievement. But but being first doesn't necessarily mean that you most effectively uh, use the the new breakthrough. Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and again, part of the reason why NRL was picked over von Braun was much more sophisticated space tracking and technology of the satellite itself. In 55, there was discussion about possibly 
putting an NRL satellite on the Army rocket, but uh, people in the Stewart Committee decided that would be uh, too difficult getting the armed services. You know, the old joke, if the Navy and the Air Force fought the enemy as vigorously as they fight each other, they'd be really dangerous. <laughs> That's good. That's good. Um, so you, your dad then moved from Vanguard into uh, working on tracking these satellites. Is that correct? Correct. Either December 57 or January 58, he realized that the Soviets would soon launch spy satellites, which would be quiet most of the time. Uh, Minitrack depended on detecting a signal, you know, power from the uh, signal from the transmitter on board the satellite. So he came up with the idea for Naval Space Surveillance System, which had three transmitters and six receiving stations along 33 degrees north in the U.S. So a spy satellite typically will be launched into polar orbit, you know, because in polar orbit, as the Earth rotates under it, it can see the whole Earth eventually. And um, um, so for that, an east-west configuration of the tracking station is superior to the north-south of Minitrack. And again, he started working on it in January of 58. So that's even before Vanguard 1 is launched. Um, ARPA, or DARPA as it's later called, uh, Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. That was one of the early projects that they supported. And they started working on the tracking stations in June of 58 and tracked their first satellite in August. And and naval space surveillance got a lot of uh, attention. Uh, in 1962, we spent the summer in Santa Barbara. There was an SDI project um, called Starlight that Dad was working on. And in route west, we we stopped at the Lake Kickapoo station, and that was the first time I ever saw a teletype. Uh, machine, which for 1962, uh, you know, was the internet of the day. That was, mm. that was, uh, so, so the dads were working on, uh, on SDI and about 150 kids were having a lot of fun playing at the beach and playing all sorts of games with each other. Um, and sorry, S SDI. In the 1960s, they were working on, a uh, a missile defense project to see if it was feasible. And I know the Soviets built one defending Moscow. Uh, I believe it became operational in the late 60s, but nothing significant came out of this project. But for me, it was a great summer uh, uh, playing with all the other kids, seeing Disneyland. I, I know that summer we met Charlie Bossert, the uh, designer the atlas but i confess i remember uh disneyland and knott's berry farm much better than rocket pioneers <laughs> as you would at that age <laughs> so um in 1964 dad probably in april 
he's talking with Dr. Arnold Shostak. And some people may know his son, Seth, who's involved in the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. By the way, Dad and Dr. Shostak are talking about the hydrogen maser, which is a very accurate atomic clock developed in 1960. And they agreed that the hydrogen maser made passive ranging, which is how GPS works, it made it feasible. So if you know what time a signal leaves a satellite, and you know where that satellite is, and you know what time you receive the signal in the um, receiver, you know how far you are from the satellite. So uh, right. if you have four satellites in sight, you can compute your three-dimensional position plus your time synchronization. And that's basically how GS works. And um, they did their first test in October of 64, where they had a convertible driving down 295, which is a highway, I remember it being constructed, that goes right past the Naval Research Lab. And one of the engineers had a convertible. He had a transmitter in his car, and they were receiving it back at NRL. And one of my dad's colleagues, Chester Klezak, said uh, Matt Maloof, the driver, was very surprised that they could tell when he was changing lanes. So they started working on what became Timation 1, and it was launched in, let's see, actually, it's, it's, 60, it's 52 years old today. It was launched on May 31st, 1967. Uh, they had the first demonstration of how it worked to uh, people from the Pentagon that October and uh, got additional funding. Uh, two years later, they launched Timation 2, which uh, transmitted on two frequencies so they could correct for the distortion from the ionosphere, which bends radio waves. And uh, a couple years later, uh, my dad was working with Dr. Humphrey Smith from the time division of the Royal Observatory. And um, they did time synchronization between the, uh, the Naval Observatory in Washington and the Royal Observatory in the UK. So early on, uh, there was close cooperation between the US and, and the Brits on, on uh, using these new satellites and, and using them again for time synchronization, which is a critical part of GPS, but is less well known. Uh, it's and, and so was the intention right from the start to use these for navigation, or was that like a side effect of it was for both. the information they were getting? It was for both. My dad's system was time navigation for time, timation, I'm, I'm sorry, for time navigation. So from the very beginning, the intent was both. Um, in a 1974 interview, Dad said that by then it was called GPS would would result in worldwide time synchronization, a worldwide time web. So contrary to what a lot of people say, both aspects, you know, you call it a PNT, positioning, navigation, and timing. You know, GPS is a PNT system, and from the mm -hmm. very beginning they were they were thinking of all three uh, uses of it. 
Right. But more for military use rather than civilian. Well, it was, it was there was a civilian signal from day one, but they could not get any of the civilian agencies to agree to fund it. So the Department of Defense, with its relatively deep pockets, you know, people like the Department of Transportation said, "Oh, that sounds interesting. Let us know when it's working." So, uh, <laughs> so it was a dual use military civilian system from day one, but uh, but the military was running it. Yeah. So GPS came about as a direct result of the the Cold War then, you could say. Yes. Uh, the U.S. and Vietnam sent, you know, bomber after bomber to knock out certain bridges in North Vietnam and had a terrible time doing it. So... So uh, it, it definitely was Cold War. And I've got a, a story that one of my dad's colleagues, Pete Wilhelm, told me. Um, he started working at NRL in, in 1959 and retired in 2014. So he was there 55 years. Uh, he worked on the very first spy satellite, uh, Grab, in 1960, which was not photography, but it was to detect Soviet radars. And in 1962, he was working on CIRCAL, a satellite to calibrate space surveillance for my father. And he asked, Dad, do we need a, a switch to turn it off? And Dad said, I, I don't think so. And Pete said, on every pass, every two-hour pass, CIRCAL would jam space surveillance for about 10 seconds. It was so powerful in transmitting. And it was a big pain until it finally burned up three years later. So uh, <laughs> uh, discussion came on a NAVLIST website whether uh, the Soviets had ever jammed our space tracking systems. And I said, well, we did it to ourselves with, uh, with CIRCAL. <laughs> so, so. Dad is working on Timation 3, and in April 1973, a memo goes out from the Assistant Secretary of Defense saying that there will be a joint program office to develop new defense navigation satellite system. The, the Joint Chiefs of Staff in the late 60s set up parameters for a replacement for transit. Transit was the first space-based navigation system, good for Polaris missile subs, but not really useful for airplanes. It could give you a period maybe once an hour uh, and not instantaneous reads. So in 68, they said we need a successor system, which will be worldwide, all-weather, uh, three-dimensional, accurate within nearest I can tell 50 feet. And, you know, we, we talked about Project Vanguard, that all three services uh, were competing for that. Uh, the Pentagon didn't think they could afford multiple systems. You had my dad's system for the Navy, uh, Timation, and the Air Force had its Project 621B. So McNamara had made the Air Force, the lead in space uh, in the early 60s, which the Navy never liked. Navy felt like its needs were ignored. 
but it got overruled here in April 73. And um, they were going to set up a joint program office. The, it didn't have the term GPS yet. That came that fall, but led by the Air Force. And there were a series of meetings. Uh, I have the, the minutes from one in California in June 6th through 8th, 1973. The Air Force pitched its Project 621B, which got rejected. And then Brad Parkinson, who's my dad's major rival for the Air Force, claims that uh, the Air Force, the JPO came up with the idea for GPS at the Lonely Halls meeting in the Pentagon in um, over Labor Day 1973. I have a memo from September 21st that pretty clearly contradicts that story. It shows that the major developments were after Labor Day, and the major developments were towards timation. And many of my dad's colleagues say that there was another meeting at a motel on Spring Hill Road in Fairfax, Virginia, that that uh, that weekend. And if you look, it's on our website. Uh, they had three scenarios from Labor Day 1973, which look a lot like 621B. And then they added, three weeks later, they had scenario 4 and 4A, uh, which look a lot more like timation. And that's what was actually decided upon. But uh, there's still fights today. I've written multiple articles about it. And uh, uh, I found... In doing research for my book, um, Captain Holmes had died, but his daughter found a slide presentation, which again talked about the motel on Spring Hill Road. And I'm pretty sure I was there that evening. Um, you, I, I remember going with my mom to dinner with my dad at a place I'd never been to before, and that had to be the motel on Spring Hill Road which my memory is not necessarily good about what I ate for breakfast, but that was a week before my freshman year in college. So, uh, so memories are much more intense. And, and yeah. uh, Timation 3, which was renamed NTS-1, uh, was launched in 1974. That carried the first rubidium atomic clocks into orbit. And NTS-2, my dad's last Timation satellite, was launched in 77 with a cesium atomic clocks. So, so the atomic clocks are key to getting GPS's accuracy. And a lot of it has been on space burning. Okay. And atomic clock. What is an atomic clock? I know in 1967, they changed the definition of a second from astronomical to uh, so many vibrations from a cesium atom. And oh, okay. So they're, so they're using a physical um, entity and using that as the timing mechanism. Correct. Right. Got it, I think. I should, have listen, I should have listened more in science class, obviously. Well, and I can't say, in spite of having spent a day and a half with Bob Kern, who uh, developed the, uh, the cesium atomic 
clocks for uh, NTS2. I confess uh, it's a little bit beyond my knowledge, too. So the first Block 1, which were the test uh, GPS satellites, the first three of those were launched in 1978, but they took the first three and added it to uh, NTS-2 and did the first test of, you know, four of these satellites can give you your three-dimensional position uh, plus plus your uh, your time. And when the when co- the U.S. Congress agreed to fund the space shuttle, they decided all U.S. military, all government satellites should be launched on the space shuttle, which was really a, a stupid thing. Um, you know, you need a lot of safeguards if you're launching humans into orbit that you don't need. I mean, the um, the um, GPS satellites are in 12,000-mile orbits, whereas the space shuttle could go up a couple hundred miles. So they would have had to, uh, you know, give give the satellites a considerable boost uh, after after uh, the shuttle was in orbit. But when Challenger blew up in January uh, 1986, uh, they decided they they better go with unmanned rockets and um, so they started launching the Block 2, the actual uh, satellites for the system in 1989. So when the Gulf War started in 1991, I believe at that point they had 17 satellites, some of them Block 1s. So GPS was not fully functional, but they adjusted the orbits to uh, give uh, 2D positioning around the clock in the Persian Gulf and 3D positioning a fair bit of the time. So in a lot of ways, Gulf War One, you know, proved that uh, GPS would would uh, fulfill its original needs. And of course, as you said, even though civilian use was built in from day one, and the very first adopters of GPS were surveyors. So if you have four satellites overhead, you know, you just put out your surveying device and you wait for them to come overhead. You just need positioning. You don't need navigation. You don't need timing. Hmm. And so even before the military was able to use it, surveyors were. Uh, but but post-Gulf War One, you know, the, uh, the civilian uses really took off. And after... 2000, when they removed selective availability, which degraded the signal for civilian uses, you know, then we've had a total explosion. Uh, to date, I think the U.S. has spent about $45 billion on GPS, and each year in the U.S., we get more than $100 billion of, of increased efficiency, not to mention the rest of the world. So... Uh, so how many GPS satellites are there up there now? Right now they're using 31. Due to software, they're limited to 32. They have five, five, somewhere between five and seven um, ones that they deactivated, but they could call back if there was a problem with one of the 31. And 
The right. Europeans have their Galileo system. The the Russians have their GLONASS, which fell in the hard times in the mid to late 90s. Uh, their satellites had relatively short lifespans, but uh, they've since built it back. Uh, again, the EU with Galileo, the, um, the Chinese with uh, Beidou, and the, uh, the Japanese and the Indians have regional constellations to improve the accuracy over their countries. So, uh, yeah, sounds like it's getting crowded. Yes, up there. in fact, some people have estimated if you have more than 70 navigation satellites in sight, they could start to interfere with each other. So you truly can have too much of a good thing uh, in that case. Mm. Yeah. But it is amazing looking back how much, you know, the GAO Government Accounting Office issued a scathing uh, report in 1979 about uh, the problems with GPS. And uh, similarly, in 2009, they said the constellations in uh, in danger because it was taking the Air Force a long time to launch their their newest satellites. But the older satellites have performed much better for much longer time periods. So the, the constellation, you know, has to have a minimum of 24, but they've been at 31 for some time. So, uh, yeah, no, it's incredible how that, um, how reliant we've become on that technology. And you can tell that by the fact that each of these nations that you listed um, want to have their own uh, system rather than be reliant on the uh, American government's yes. network. GPS is so successful, everybody wants one. And in 2016, my co-author Eric and I were invited to speak at Air Force Space Command, and we got to see two SOPs, which is where they control GPS at Schriever Air Force Base. So you go to the basic base security, and you know there's basic security. But if you want to get into two SOPs, there's a, another secure, you know, barbed wire, white security around it. And there are other military units in there. I don't know what they are, but uh, but obviously uh, they want to make sure that the people who control GPS cannot be physically attacked. Um, one of the James Bond films from the mid to late 90s starts out with the Chinese spoofing the signal to to a British ship and getting sucking oh, in. Oh yeah, to start a yes, a battle. Yeah. 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 So you know yeah. GPS has arrived when it's a part of a bond plot. Exactly. Exactly. Um, R- Richard, that that's been a really interesting story, and a lot of a lot of stuff there. Um, I didn't know. Could you uh, share a little bit with the listeners about about the book that you mentioned, the the title of it, and uh, what it what it covers? It's called GPS Declassified: From Smart Bombs to Smartphones. Um, it covers the whole history of GPS, starting with Flopnik uh, TV3 blowing up on the pad, and we go through the history of navigation. I've always been interested in history, though my day job is as an actuary. And I realized uh, that there was a great story that had been happening before my eyes 
and and a lot of people that worked on GPS were dying off. And it's not only me, a lot of other people worked on the history. I was building on a lot of excellent work by other people. We've been able to preserve uh, their stories in, in our book. I know that I can't give the details, but I believe sometime this year, a lot of new documents are going to be declassified and additional aspects of the pre-73 history are going to come out. So, uh, so, you know, you're, you're all. Sounds like it's time for a yes, second volume. Well, we just then. got word yesterday from our publisher, University of Nebraska Press, that they're going to bring out a paperback edition next spring. Well, that's all that Richard and I had time for. But if you'd like to buy the book, GPS Declassified, and support the podcast at the same time, then head over to our show notes, which are at coldwarconversations.com slash the word episode and the number 76. This will also show us a link in some podcast apps. The show notes also have some videos relating to this episode, which are well worth a watch. Don't forget, if you'd like to get a Cold War Conversations coaster and help keep us on the air, then head over to patreon.com slash coldwarpod. Or again, click on the link in your podcast app. You can also help us by leaving reviews on iTunes, Stitcher, our Facebook page, or with your favourite podcast provider. This really helps raise our profile and get new guests on the show. And if you can't wait till the next episode, do visit our Facebook discussion group where our guests and listeners like yourselves continue the Cold War conversation. Thank you very much for listening. It is really appreciated. Goodbye. Not enjoying the ads? Well, you can avoid them by going to coldwarconversations.com slash donate. By becoming a monthly or annual supporter, you'll enjoy ad-free listening, become a part of our community, receive the sought-after Cold War Conversations drinks coaster, and bask in the warm glow of knowing that you're helping to preserve Cold War history. Just go to coldwarconversations.com slash donate for more information.